40 here, so we are going out live right now over YouTube. We are going out live over Rumble. We are going out live over Odyssey. We are going out live over Facebook. We are going out live over Twitter. Right, the, the whole world is here. What a, what a blessed day to talk about should you interview Nazis. Did uh, one stream on this earlier today, but uh, I'm ready to ready to do another. Ready to, to go big or to, to go home. Right. Should you interview Nazis? And this was occasion I finally joined the Patreon, right, for decoding the gurus and uh and they were interviewing helen lewis so let me play a little bit here um on a podcast about uh, cults and people that were previously in cults and uh they were talking to us about the why so many of the people in the guru space appear to be male not appear to be male they, they generally are male but um and matt re re presented his theory of um you know men being risk-taking um uh sensation seekers uh like because he's obsessed with gambling and he knows that this this applies but you previously suggested the last time we had you on that there's a there's an issue there because that applies more to younger men than older men but lots of the gurus are older so uh we were asked in the interview what the solution to that was and neither of us could remember remember. (laughs) so my kindly told them to like uh listen to what helen said in that interview but um I'm inviting you, since you're here, and Matt can I consult with you to help him upgrade this theory. There's another gender difference. What is it? Well, I, I mean, this is a very you may this is hardcore feminist theory, so Matt, so you're entitled, you know, entitled to question the evidentiary basis of it. But if this is the idea of male entitlement is the idea that we, like Cordelia Fine's book is very feminist theory. Good on so the fact Matt. that you know parents pay more attention to male babies, male kids in school um, talk more, they interrupt more, they get more attention from the teacher. Okay, it's good to get the feminist critique. I suspect what's really going on here is that there's more uh, disproportion with regard to IQ in men versus women. So you have more higher IQ men and lower IQ men. Women tend to be more in the middle. Also, women reproduce. Women have babies. Men have to get their sense of significance from from doing something a little more dramatic. They have to go out into the world and conquer. So uh, there is a kind of, and I think I'm convinced relatively by the evidence of it, a kind of consistent drumbeat in boys' lives that you're someone who's worthy of attention or someone who should be listened to, you can put yourself first. Whereas all that, you know, the, I spent my childhood being told, you know, it's not ladylike, you know, sit properly, do this, don't, don't take up too much space. And there's that brilliant Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie speech that, you know, girls are told to shrink themselves and, and, and like put other people first. And I think there's a kind of, with the gurus, it's kind of tapping the wine glass, everybody listen to me thing. That is quite... It is quite something that we don't normally encourage women to do. Now, as ever, there are some percentage of women that are, like me, massively fond of the sound of their own voices and overcome this terrible, debilitating uh, female condition. But like, I just think that you find more men who are 
And also the other thing I think in, in the gurus that you cover, they have to have a certain inability to read feedback that people are a bit bored. Okay, I, I don't think these are very strong explanations. I, I don't think women suffer from an inability to speak up for themselves, to share what's really on their mind or on their heart. Right. There's a kind of lack of emotional intelligence that your audience's eyes have slightly glazed over and you're nonetheless plowing onto the next 10 minutes of this anecdote regardless. And I, I, yeah, I wonder if that's a more male trait too. But this is, I mean, this is very, you know, stereotypical, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, no, you'd be very proud of me because I did actually mention that in that interview, Chris. I did mention, I literally said, it's the patriarchy. I literally said you, that. You did. You did. I that, did because, that's a summary of what Helen just described. Yeah. So, yeah. Because yeah. like I Googled, like during that interview, I Googled like Indian gurus, like, you know, the traditional gurus. And, you know, Google gives you a nice, great big. Okay. So women dominate in certain spheres of life. Men dominate in other spheres of life. It seems part and parcel of the natural order list with all the photographs and yeah they're all, they're all guys right <laughs> and you gotta gotta expect society's gotta have something to do with that right so for the same reason that most politicians are, are men yeah. right um so um can I, it's the old can it's I, the old nature nurture well i do and i also think if you accept the thesis which our commissioning editor was really interested that we explore that to some extent the kind of internet gurus have replaced traditional religion then you are swapping one male authority figure for another the other couple of dynamics i think are really important is i think there are a lot of guys out there looking for a kind of father figure and actually, mm. David Fuller, who you guys know, I asked him this question in regard to Peterson, and he said, well, look, it's, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if that's true, but like, I don't think it's a bizarre or offensive question, essentially, was what he said. Because, you know, that, that's Peterson's appeal to lots of people is like stern, but empathetic. Or at least it was before he, you know, went into his full, you know, madness of King George Pomp these days. But, but he was explicitly a kind of stern dad to the internet. And then the other thing is, I think to some extent, and this is getting very stereotypical, podcasts in some respect become for men like friends. <laughs> Sorry if this sounds really offensive. I don't mean it to be. But like the parasocialness of it, I think for people who don't have such huge social networks themselves in real life can actually be really appealing. I feel, I feel attacked. <laughs> just, look, Alan, just to be clear, Matt and I are not friends. This is purely a business a relationship, purely intellectual. Matt is uh, an intellectual sock for, for uh, my entertainment. There's, there's no passion or, or genuine friendship there. But, but that... No, no, I mean, I, mean, I mean, that's good. Thank you. Okay, I think there might be something to that. All right, women have... Um, perhaps more friends, more, more community. Also, women color between the lines, so it's easier for them to have friends and community. Also, male-only spaces have been severely restricted by the civil rights movement. So where can men go to be in men-only spaces? That's been severely constricted. So women don't want to just hang out with women. Women also want access to male-only spaces, uh, men don't get access nearly as readily to female-only spaces. So the playing field is not level. Men are more willing to pursue truth even at the price of popularity. And women are highly programmed to try to be as popular as possible within the community. So men are more willing to explore ideas outside of the Overton window. So where can you do this? Not so easy to do this in real life you can find a community that does this online. So men are more adventurous. So if you ask university professors who are your best students, it will invariably be men. But women will tend to get the best grades because they're more likely to be followers and to just simply color within the lines. Glib Medley says, high IQ people are ripe for court recruitment. David Koresh recruited several Harvard students and the Volvo branding Nixium devotees were also high achievers. So I love the podcast decoding the gurus. Finally broke down, lashed out ten dollars a month for you know, their highest level content, and am rewarded by this conversation with Helen Lewis, 
and she used to write for the New Statesman. She's making podcasts for the BBC. She's got a new podcast series on gurus coming out for the BBC. And she's uh, centre-left and a feminist. We're clearing that up, but I mean for the audience, right? In the sense we talked a lot in the last couple of years oh, about damn. the kind of crisis of male loneliness, about the fact that decline of male only, you know, the fact that pubs and bars used to be very male spaces, they're now mixed family spaces. There aren't that many, you know, and actually also they have this line about whether or not it's like women talk to each other and men talk alongside each other, right? Like often a lot of men find it more comfortable to like go fishing together, go to the cricket together, go to the football together, and they don't have to be like, now is our big deep chat about our feelings. And I wonder if podcasts kind of give you that. Like you listen to Joe Rogan mm. and it's like, here are the bros all kind of hanging out together. And like, I'm yeah. a bro too. Yeah, I think careful, Mike. Careful, it's a trap. (laughs) I know. Oh, look, there's so much stuff feeding into it. And there's a couple of things that's tricky. First of all, like any sort of evidence of like psychological, empirical data on this isn't very helpful in figuring out who's going to be a guru because they're almost by definition exceptional people. And the the kind of data you gather on whether it's, um, you know, um, know, risky status-seeking behaviors or narcissism, whatever is on normal or relatively normal populations, you know? Um, so it can help you understand about the audience perhaps, but not so much about the, about the, those edge tail scenarios. Um, I, th- I think though the, you know, I think that, that dark triad, the, the narcissism and that, that egocentric kind of thing is, is maybe a, a sex difference that persists. Um, what is it? It's the dark triad girl, Machiavellianism, narcissism and psychopathy. No, what, what is it? Oh, I always forget. God. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? Has the quiz started or is this just like... <laughs> yeah, no, it's about academic specialism. No, because they always, they always said that they found that in internet trolls as well. Like there is, uh, it's funny if you think that the psychology of the guru and the internet troll is, it, in one way, one well, is just a much more successful internet troll, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if, if you look at the replies to uh, Brett Weinstein or Jordan Peterson, you know, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of women there who are... Who are hey, up. did you know that Brett Weinstein has been appointed to... Uh, Ron DeSantis's new, you know, public health oversight committee. I mean, Brett Weinstein. I mean, the guy is is a nutter. And Ron DeSantis going after Anthony Fauci, appointing Brett Weinstein, appointing a whole bunch of you know COVID vaccine skeptics to this you know public health oversight committee. I think it's ridiculous. I remember I was arguing about vaccines and the the. You know, public health response to the, the COVID crisis with a philosopher and a, and a skeptic. And he said, well, I'm sure you'd agree that Brett Weinstein is a reasonable fellow. And so he was quoting Brett Weinstein's COVID skepticism. And now I do not agree that, that Brett Weinstein is a reasonable fellow. Neither him or his brother, Eric Weinstein, strike me as particularly reasonable. We're on board. Um, I don't yeah, I was, I was I was browsing through them today. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe anti-vax is a bit of a special situation, but at least when mm. I sort of browse, oh, yeah, it, it feels fact. it feels pretty pretty gender. Jordan Peterson went anti-vax quite hard today. Today, so, yeah, yeah. He was always a little bit anti-vax. So if you remember, they went to um, Serbia during the pandemic. I think it was one of the former Yugoslav countries because they didn't want to be in the like all the US lockdowns, the Canadian lockdowns were so incredibly strict, and you were like. Like, sir, you've recently had double pneumonia. Like, this is really an illness you should not catch. Like, I'll probably be fine. You actually might die if you if you catch this. But it was I, yeah. so there were there were early signs that he was going that way. I, there were, and I think like uh, this might be a reverse influence case from Michaela is is more inclined towards that, or or it was initially. But there was an interesting case actually where we we decoded the uh, discussion between Jordan Peterson and Brett, which was one of his first post illness extended interviews, and Brett because he's Brett at several points brought up the vaccines and COVID and Jordan 
repeatedly kind of had to take that, well, I don't know about that. And I'm not really in a place to speak because I, you know, I've just been knocked out and I haven't had the time to look into things. He, he doesn't have that concern anymore. But I mean, I remember Matt, you and I at the time saying, isn't it nice to see someone being like thrown the ball and asked the like rum of it and saying, look, I'm not, I'm not in a position to comment on vaccines and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's well, actually so different from now. When I, when I saw Jordan's, you know, jumping on the anti-vax thing and there was a sense of rightness to it. Like you could tell that he was comfortable and he like, like the jigsaw puzzles fitted into place with this satisfying click. And one of the, the standard, I guess, psychological perspectives on why people have particular opinions is they, they have opinions that fit in with a broader worldview and, and his opinion about vaccines didn't fit in yeah. with his general anti-establishment. Yeah. Um, That's important. We develop opinions that fit in with our wider worldview. So if we hear something that, that triggers us and send us off in a, in a whole new direction, well, really, it's a whole new direction that fits in with our overall worldview, right? People don't dramatically change their worldviews very often, right? Our, our new thoughts, our new ways of thinking are generally those new ways of thinking that are compatible with our pre-existing worldview. Yeah, um, worldview. And you could, you could feel that it, it, it just, it, it, you felt him sort of clicking into place. And now. Same with climate change, really, right? Like he just has rejected the scientific consensus on climate change for basically the same reasons because it would kind of just be, make him an outlier. The one thing I did think making that inter intellectual dark episode actually is my respect for Sam Harris has increased because he does seem to be able to stand up to his friends and say, I know you all think this, but I actually don't. And, and, and like I say, I agree with you entirely. John Peterson's radicalization to me looks not like an intellectual journey, but like peer pressure. And yeah. Sam Harris has to some extent managed to resist that, often at great yeah. personal cost of all the rest of them being mean boys to him, basically, and like laughing at him, which is one of the you know, hardest things to resist. If you get like a load of high status people all just openly mocking you, very few people will be able to resist that. It would be good if somebody had encouraged Sam Harris to. That is a very good point there by Helen Lewis. I remember in junior college, uh, some of the cooler kids in my math class started making fun of Republicans. And I immediately just wanted to shrink away from any association with Republicans. So much of my life, I thought myself much stronger than peer pressure. But then when push came to shove, I often found myself succumbing to peer pressure. To uh, take that kind of stance earlier and, and, and made that point to him. Uh, just, it, would have been, it would have been good, but, you know, we, we, can't, we can't live in that world. So Me just to say, Chris, you had the last laugh. <laughs> well, oh, oh, that interview. Yes, oh, yes, that did come up in that interview, but well, it, it well, is very nice to see. Well, I think it's, it's ironic in a way, like Sam Harris's willingness to to disappoint people and just that bullheaded, single-minded um, uh, way that he's got. The very thing that made him so irritating for you to interview. Who said he was irritating that? You said that. I didn't say that. Anyway, I think that's helped him resist that peer pressure and stuff. Right. So, and I yeah, feel the same about um, Barry Weiss as well, right? Formerly of the New York Times, who left the New York Times, founded what was formerly Common Sense, now the Free Press. And she did the Twitter file. So she took the Elon bargain, the Faustian Elon bargain, but then immediately I went and did some actual reporting looked into some other stuff and then said, I'm really concerned that we've exchanged one, you know, overlord's whims for another overlord's whims, at which point Elon had a little cry because it turned out he did. Okay, the great Elon Musk bargain for these journalists was that they first published the results on Twitter. But that's not much of a compromise. You're not really giving up anything significant if you simply promise to first publish the results on Twitter. Right? That was the only requirement of which I'm aware you're not exactly, you know, selling out your journalistic integrity. Simply promise that, first of all, you will publish the results on Twitter. He didn't want independent journalism at all. He wanted somebody to be his instrument. And I think unfollowed her, which is, I mean, for a 50-something man, just an aspirational level of pettiness. Um, and uh, the chat says, bullheaded Sam Harris has been bullied off Twitter. 
not sure if he's being bullied off Twitter. A lot of people have left Twitter because I think that's in their self-interest. Right? So someone being strong enough to recognize, hey, it's not in my self-interest to be on Twitter. I initially thought, yeah, you know, Sam Harris just couldn't stand up to the scrutiny and the challenge that came with, with being on Twitter. But uh, maybe many of us are better off much of the time not being on social media. So I've kind of come around in my perspective on Sam Harris leaving Twitter, I recognize for many people, it is the best thing that they get off Twitter, get off social media or stop live streaming. I, which yeah. I have to respect. But yeah, I, I, I respected that she did that, that she went, I'm a journalist, like give me some files. Great. It's really interesting. And maybe I'll agree to your conditions because this story is so good, but that doesn't mean you own me. And I think any journalist worth it. And the only condition to which I'm, of which I'm aware that Elon Musk plays is that you first publish on Twitter, right? That's not much of a condition. Holt would have immediately gone, I'm going to do something now that's rude about Elon Musk just to show that I can. I don't, I'm not bought and sold like that. It, it was nice. It was nice to see that. And uh, and some people have, have indicated that Tyvee talked a bit about it on this podcast. I haven't listened to confirm that. But um, but in in that case, with the, the Twitter files and, you know, we, we should talk about Musk as a potential like guru. But I, I, on, on Barry Weiss, I, this this is this is a pet peeve, but uh, I think I think it does relate to uh, like especially the IDW side of the the guru sphere, um, because and it's something that Matt and I have talked also in um, some of the American self help people that we've covered. There's a breathless way that they present information, and you see it, you know, in in extreme form in Brett Weinstein, where everything is the collapse of civilization, and you know the woke are going to take over, and it or James Lindsay for that matter. Barry is not that. But okay, that's a good uh, outside of America perspective. There is a breathless marketing and a hyping and a dramatizing and an over-enthusiasm with, with American presentations. I remember when I was growing up in Australia, the, we'd see American movies and everything would be you know, so dramatic. They, they'd try to juice every little bit of drama out of every interaction we think, oh, you know, bloody Yanks, typically Yanks. Now, of course, Americans come to Australia and they wonder why we're so stiff up a lip, why we are more open and honest with our emotions, why we are more enthusiastic. But when consuming her content, I definitely get the same sense, and I did with the Twitter files, that, like, wait for this ground-shaking, like, earth-moving information, which will blow your mind about everything that happened. And then fundamentally with the Twitter files and whatnot. It is an interesting story. It's nice to see moderation discussions and like peek behind the, the Slack window. But it's exactly what I would have anticipated was happening. And I think that's a pretty fair center-left critique. The Twitter files stories are interesting and they are also what you would expect to be revealed. At Twitter and in line with what was kind of publicly known so it just, that's the, the bit, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that is, but in counterpoint to that, I would say, think about the Snowden or the Julian Assange revelations and think about, oh, the CIA does some spying, pretty heady stuff. Like you, you have to not be too kind of like yawny about that stuff. And also the fact that the Guardian. Yeah. Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, their revelations much more intense, much more important so far than the Twitter files. And the New York Times puffed that stuff like it was kind of earth shaking, right? And oh, our relations with our allies will never be the same again. And guess what? It turns out that everyone went, oh, yeah, okay, so the CIA are bugging our phones. Oh, right, well, yeah, fair enough. We probably thought that was true. So I kind of, from a journalist point of view, I'm going to defend sensationalism because you always want to, people to read your stories. But I will concede that it created massive. Okay, so she's saying for a journalism 
partisan, essentially. She's going to defend sensationalism because she's a journalist and want people to read your stories. So it emphasizes again that most of what is news is not important, that uh, journalists essentially hype, if not outright lie, to try to dramatize and draw attention to their stories. So one has to be careful about one's consumption of news, or right? what's dished out to you in the form of news is not necessarily in your best interest to find out about. There are often many more important things. And news is a business that relies on the productions of bureaucracies. And sometimes the productions of bureaucracies correspond with reality, just as sometimes a jury proceeding overseen by a judge you know, does result in the correct verdict. But plenty of jury proceedings do not result in the correct verdict. So just because a jury comes to a conclusion that O.J. Simpson was not guilty of the murder of Nicole Simpson and that, that other bloke, all right, that doesn't make it accurate. And so just because something's in the news, because a report or a proceeding or a summation or a statistic is being released by some bureaucracy, doesn't mean that it corresponds to reality. And so she's pointing out here that you know journalists are quite willing to hype things that she'll defend that, even though it's a vast exaggeration about the relative importance of what they're hyping. The problem, right, which is that Mary Weiss and Matt Tybee came out and said, this is the most earth-shattering thing. Life will never be the same again. And everyone else was quite bored by it because it's quite technical. And now the right-wing sphere is obviously kind of going, yeah, going, oh. Was I surprised that the three-letter agency found it a matter of national security that you do not know the truth about the Hunter Biden laptop? Well, so far, the truth about the Hunter Biden laptop seems really boring. Whenever I try to... Uh, figure out the truth. And I've spent hours reading news reports about the Hunter Biden laptop. It tends to put me to sleep. The only possible thing that could be of significance is, you know, a certain amount of money goes to the big guy. So, yes, it, it makes sense to me that our intelligence agencies would be on the alert for foreign powers trying to manipulate our elections it turns out that they were not accurate with regard to the Hunter Biden story. I don't think this is necessarily symptomatic of the deep state trying to keep Donald Trump out of office. But I'm willing to kind of hear both sides on that. I mean, when it was going down, I wanted to believe that the Hunter Biden laptop story was incredibly significant. But how far are we now? We're almost two years past the Hunter Biden. We are two years past the Hunter Biden laptop story. And it, it doesn't seem to have significance. It's compelling. It's interesting. Like it, it grabs your attention, but uh, it doesn't really seem to have much significance. I don't know what's so important on Hunter Biden's laptop. I do find it interesting that the intelligence agencies coordinated to warn social media that this could be Russian disinformation. At the same time, though, you had the head of national intelligence saying this is not Russian disinformation, and he was ignored. So, yeah, there is media favoritism for the left. Uh, the media was trying to arrange the news in, in favor of their preferred candidate, Joe Biden, as against uh, Donald Trump. So that story is important. Right. What's actually on Hunter Biden's laptop doesn't seem that significant. The way that social media... And the news media immediately dismissed it, and many officials in our intelligence agencies worked to suppress it. That strikes me as the more interesting and more important story. 
oh, well, this is it. This is more the liberal media trying to cover stuff up. Why isn't this on? The, why isn't it the most important story in the world on the front page of the New York Times? Which is, again, also how I feel about Hunter Biden's laptop, right? It's really interesting if you go and talk to US normie Republicans and say, what was on Hunter Biden's laptop? And actually, very often they can't tell you. They just know. And I mean, it says the content of the Twitter conversations demonstrates that they knew they were lying about Russian involvement. And I don't know enough to comment on that. It was bad. It was something about corruption, something about porn, and that's it. But but the, it's become totemic, and the fact that people won't cover it has become totemic as well. This is this is probably like slightly tangential to guru stuff, but you know it's our show; we can do that. So there, I I, I do have this uh, question about like one thing that Matt and I've noticed when it comes to like the discourse around the lab leak, um, and it applies to the Twitter files and applies to the Hunter Biden laptop as well. That a large part of the debate just becomes. The shifting narrative, like like you said, with the Hunter Biden stuff, what's actually on the laptop? It's like it isn't really this earth-shaking revelations. The best thing that people have been able to focus on is some reference to the big man, right? In an email, a potential meeting set up for, uh, like meeting or some like some deal that might have potentially involved Biden in an email, right? This is this is it. It is not the greatest like Watergate level conspiracy. And the same thing with the lab leak, that when people talk about it, they, they have this memory of it where if you mention it, you were completely kicked off uh, social media and you weren't allowed to discuss it in polite company or people would spit out their tea and, you know, scream that you're a racist. But none of it's not true. First of all, it's not true because I had to deal with the lab leak people every day on Twitter. Nobody was banning them. Um, and the, it seems that like a lot of, a lot of what the gurus do and a lot of what with, oh, the online discourse and the Twitter files is no exception is around the perception as opposed to the content. Like, what what do the Twitter files mean? Does this mean that everyone was vindicated when they were talking about shadow banning and stuff? And it it, it does feel a lot like the, the details get lost in the vibe for either people wanting to endorse it or say that it's nothing and that that's predetermined. And I'm... I, and Elliot Blatt says, people who made these claims during the election were called conspiracy theorists. Now that we have the receipts, it's no big deal. Well, I think social media recognizes they misplayed the Hunter Biden laptop story. I think this was an attempt by the elites who dominate our institutions, who tend to vote left of center, to try to rig things. But I don't think it's nearly as important as what Pfizer did to delay the news of the COVID vaccine until after the election. So to try to not give Trump a boost heading into the election, they delayed the results. All right. So maybe hundreds of people perhaps died because the the approval for the COVID vaccine was delayed because Big Pharma wanted to wait until after the election to announce the good news. So I think that's probably... I don't know. Perhaps that's as important, more important than the Hunter Biden laptop story. I definitely have a bias towards it being l- lesser. And, you know, you mentioned Snowden and the, uh, I can't remember the other one. The, the Julian Assange. Files. Oh, oh Julian the, uh, the Paradise Papers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, I agree that, like, with the Paradise Papers and stuff like that, I kind of was like, yeah, rich, rich people have tax caves. Oh, shocking. But, but I did. And Elliot says, is there a way to disagree with the left-wing consensus and not be tired as a guru? Yes, uh, Decoding the Guru has libertarians and other people on the right on the show who, who they respect and who are honored guests. So no, just being on the right does not immediately tie one as a guru. I did think it is good to 
have them documented. And with Snowden, even though we know like the CIA and stuff is spying, like the extent of the spying was, I think, sort of surprising that they were doing such a huge net. And, and then the problem was they had too much data to even look at. So I, I, I realize I'm waffling around, but the point I'm trying to make like is when you're, you're a journalist and you have to address these kind of topics, um, do you find that like is what you end up having to deal with? A lot of it like being vibe based on people's perceptions as opposed to like the actual details of stories and, and like related to Barry, is it a problem that she seems to be playing into those kind of vibe based things? That- okay, that's uh, Chris Cavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus talking to journalist Helen Lewis. I did not set up this stream correctly. We are not going out live over Rumble. So I'm going to reset the stream, restart the stream, coming back with a new stream in about uh, two minutes. So hope to see you in two minutes.